Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning everybody. Moro Sambonani Koyamora Dumelang and Bokertov and welcome to the IRR show. Independent, relevant and real You'll gather again that I'm flying solo Because Big Daddy Liberty is out filming a feature On the taxi industry around the country So in the, with any luck he will be back next week um, But uh, we, we wish him luck And it should in fact be quite a very, very interesting show What the show does every Tuesday from 9 to 10 is present an hour of political analysis on everything that is current in South African politics, but from a classically liberal perspective. And what we do is we start off by spending a short while talking about issues that we think are current. Now, they may not be necessarily the political issues that would be obviously ones that one should engage with, but issues that we think are very important uh, from a from a principled and from a classical point of view, classical liberal point of view. Then we spend 20 minutes having a guest, and this morning I'm not yet sure if my guest will appear or not. Uh, and in the, in the event that he doesn't, and uh, doesn't isn't able to provide us with a very interesting take on liberalism that very few of us get exposed to, I would like to, as stand-in, present a podcast that I did some while ago with my guest from last week, uh, Dr. Anthea Jeffrey, who is the uh, the head of uh, of research uh, of, and of, and political analysis at the institute. She's written. She wrote a book called "People's War." New Light on the Struggle for South Africa. And it essentially debunks a whole lot of popular myths about the ANC's accession to power, particularly in the 10, 15 years before the election in 1994. It's a fascinating insight, and in the absence of uh, of our guest, I would like to uh, play that for you and give you a good idea of something you may never have been even aware of, let alone thought of very uh, she is a th- extremely thorough researcher and this will come through in this in this book as in this piece as well you may remember dr jeffries from last week she talked about the national health insurance and was responsible for submitting to the uh, to parliament our submission on generally the undesirability of the national health insurance then the last part will involve either picking up uh, pieces from from the start, more news items and issues we think you should deal with, or issues that may come up perhaps through through your queries or your questions, and I'll give you the details for contacting the studio in due course. Um, perhaps what I can just cover before we go to our next ad break is a little oddity, and that is this: the apparent record high temperature at at uh, Fuels Drift in the Northern Cape, which is near the uh, the Orange River, the Fisher, sorry, the Fisher River Canyon, as it goes in, as it, as it flows in from the Orange, and it was recorded to have had an over 50 percent, 50 degrees, sorry, temperature over the weekend. Nothing has ever been recorded like that before. 
But on the other side of the river, it was 42 degrees, which is fairly normal for that part of the world. And what the weather services discovered is that the mistake may lie in a new gauge that was put in place a, a day or two before to measure the temperature. And they have realized that the, <laughs> the temperature was not over 50 degrees. So we can all relax a little bit about the possible effects, effects of climate uh, change and global warming on South Africa. If you want to contact us and give us your views, the studio number is 010-140-3020. Alternatively, by telegram on 061-895-01, sorry, I get it all wrong. 061-895-1019 and SMS the tried and tested 34519. So we would really be very happy to have your views on anything we may raise and the, the, it'll be an interesting, I think, an interesting uh, variation. We are going to look at, and this is as a symptom of the South African malaise, the situation with Cricket South Africa. Now, even if you don't know about, don't care about, or know nothing about cricket, the rules of cricket, how the game is played, its weirdnesses and its wonderfulness, the way Cricket South Africa is currently being managed is a, as I say, is a synonym for everything that is going wrong politically in the country. And when you touch us on our sport, I think that is really where you run the risk of things exploding and imploding very, very quickly. And this, I will go into much more detail about that, and it should be, it should be quite a lot of fun. It's also very distressing, I have to say. I will also be looking at, very briefly, the ongoing saga of the SAA, and that's largely vaguely depressing rather than finding a solution, which we all thought was going to happen. I will also then look at the fascinating judgment involving John Grelani, who was a newspaper journalist and commentator for very many years, and then, be, and then was given a post as ambassador to Uganda. Um, and it is in Uganda that he made what might be considered considerably homophobic remarks and praised the attitude or approach that uh, ex late, former president, I would say late, but former president Robert Mugabe, um, made about homosexuality and its, and its quote undesirability, close quote. And the interesting thing about this particular case is that it upturns all the views generally about, that exist about hate speech and the fact that hate speech has been spread to be defined very, very widely. And as a consequence, it's caused a lot of trouble in the courts because different courts have defined it differently and the, the law in which it has been based has contravened the Constitution. And in the view of the IRR, it's the Constitution that is paramount and we believe, and this is a matter for debate and discussion, that um, freedom of speech needs to be limited as little as possible because the society can take the robustness of the debate around issues that are racist, homophobic, hurtful, or harmful. And it is only when they become verging on inciting to violence that we then enter the realm of hate speech. The uh, American law is interesting in the sense that there is no provision for hate speech. So you can, in American law, say absolutely anything you want. And there's a, a lot of pushback against that, particularly from the 
from the left who believe that there should be limitations so that you, you don't give sucker to the far, to the far right. They're not so sure about not giving sucker to the far left, but I think it, it flows both ways. Huge issue, but the constitution is, is, is absolutely supreme in America and it is unlikely at any time to change. We're not, we're, we're slightly, slightly more conservative than that, but uh, it, this new judgment surely gives pause for it. Then I'm going to have a look at a judgment concerning the um, failure by the police to do their jobs. The fact that people who have called upon the police to stop crime, to arrest people who are committing crime, has been hampered by the fact that the police have either said they don't have the resources to do it, or worse than that, that they don't, that the, the, the party complaining must go and get a court order. Now, this is, to my mind, a truly disturbing state of affairs. Since when should ordinary members of society have to go about getting court orders to get the police to do their jobs? And as the judge in the case said, it is not for either the courts, for the courts in any form, to tell the police how and when to the, do the job. And he raised it particularly within the context that the person who is meant to give that instruction and ensure that they are done is the provincial police commissioner. And this set of cases revolved around Pumalanga, and I'm not even sure who the provincial police commissioner is. But we'll examine aspects of this case after the ad break. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to the IRR show. This is Saragon, your host for the morning. Before we go ahead, I need to convey this message. Need to talk? Are you stressed, emotionally overwhelmed, abused? Then the FM helpline is a resource for you. It, you may contact the toll-free number at 0800-242436 for a caring, compassionate, and confidential response. Right. I'm going to mix it up a bit and get into some of the detail, and here is the fun stuff. I'm going to deal with what Rob Howing, sports chief, chief sports writer of Sport24, called CSA, an increasingly crackpot Kremlin. Um, and he refers to the management in the hierarchy of Cricket South Africa as being, and I quote, unsavory, incompetent, idiotic, unlovable, and autocratic. Now, if that doesn't strike some familiar bells, I don't know what does. Now, what we have under the watch of the of the... Cricket SA is the recently and controversially re-entrenched President Chris Nenzani. Now, I say controversially because he's meant to have a three-year term and there are processes for, for going into a second term and apparently they were not followed. And with him is the COO, COO Tabang Moroi, who is currently beset by multi-pronged chaos, um, and that may be putting it mildly. Um, it seems that a lot of the a lot of the problems with cricket SA, the poor performances on the field in the last uh, few months, are really f- to be found at the top. And my, like most things that rot, they rot. The organisations rot from the top. There has been what has been referred to as oppressive financial strife, dogged by complex in-house litigation on several fronts, and over um, a flight of once loyal. Blue chip sponsors and interim th- and dithering inter- interim themed appointments. Now, 
that is very, very damning. And apparently Cricket South Africa has essentially gone through one billion rands worth of sponsorship just by losing it. Now, then, then it went one stay further. And in fact, I think the last major sponsor who's been a sponsor for decades has been, uh, uh, Standard Bank. And they are currently in negotiations with Standard Bank. And one is hoping as a cricket lover that Standard Bank will say, clean sweep of the management or we go. It's a bit rough, but that might be the way it has to go. Um, Howing refers to the near wasteland that is domestic franchise first-class cricket, and it is in the context of attendance at those cricket matches that five senior cricket journalists, I think including himself, had their accreditation withdrawn by the CEO of Cricket South Africa. And why did they have their accreditation drawn, uh, withdrawn? Because they have been writing negatively about CSA South Africa and haven't given CSA, CSA the opportunity to respond to some of the negative criticisms. Now, that in itself says a variety of things about the intolerance, in, incompetence, um, insecurity of the management of, of Cricket SA. Because what, and they, what they have said once there was enough pressure locally and internationally to reinstate the accreditation of the, uh, um, of the journalists is that they would be in communication with the editors to discuss the problems of their relationships with the media. Now, you and I both know what's wrong with that sentence. And what is wrong is this. The problem is not your relationship with your media. Your problem is what is happening that is causing your, your media to write negatively about you. And what one does wonder is there are, there are independent directors, um, non-executive directors, as you call, who sit on the board of, of Cricket South Africa. And one wonders what they are doing to make sure this, this situation is completely and utterly reversed. At least two of them, um, two of the women come from the corporate sector, which should be positive for good governance, but we just don't know. We don't know what is happening. We don't know what the competencies are. And a sign of it is the fact that cricket, that, um, Graham Smith, the former South African cricket captain, has been approached to take over the director, to the director's position of Cricket South Africa. But those negotiations are not being finalized because he is not yet sure that he's going to get the control he needs. And if the indication of the management is anything to go by, he's going to need all the control he gets. Otherwise, he's going to have his job completely ruined by people who actually just cannot uh, do the job. I don't want to read too much into it, but it is of concern that the CE, that the president of Cricket South Africa, who has illegally gained a second term as, as, as chair, his main thrust is transformation. At, a, at the very moment where people are saying, hang on a sec, black economic empowerment, those sorts of criteria that are not based on merit are starting to be questioned. But if that's his main theme, what about the actual game of cricket and how well it is played? Um, Ninzani is a primary school teacher from Bishu and initially ran schools cricket. And it suggests, I don't want to say it, it absolutely confirmed, but it suggests that he doesn't have the heft to be the chairman of cricket at South Africa. So watch the space because if things don't get better soon, we are probably going to disappear from the cricketing scene. And it would be both tragic and very, very ugly. Then I'd like to deal with the the John Kailani case, the case of homophobia and what happened is John Kailani who expressed 
as ambassador to Uganda, homophobic attitudes. He he described homosexuality as being akin to or coming close to um, having sex with with animals. And he has he's been taken to the Human Rights Commission, and he's been taken to the Equality Court, and he's been found to be have committed hate speech. Now he's done what needed to be done a long time ago, and that is he has actually said that the Equality Act, which governs hate speech and for which people like Penny, Penny Sparrow um, came down, is is unconstitutional. And it's unconstitutional because the grounds for hate speech in the Equality Act are so much wider than the Constitution. The Constitution is very, very narrow, and it talks about acts um, encouraging war, treason, and that are hateful and could lead to imminent vi- and, and may lead to imminent violence. So that aspect of imminent violence has to exist. With the Equality Act, it can be hate speech is anything that hurts, is harmful. Um, in relation to any, it can be religion, it can be sexuality, it can be gender, it can be class, it can be virtually anything. And we have argued for a long time that because free speech is the cornerstone of, of a democracy, above all, a democracy is measured by the extent to which it allows free speech, that free speech, however ugly and harmful and hurtful it may even be, it should be allowed because People must hear what other people are saying and must be able to challenge them with their own views. Currently, under the Employment Equity, have we, Equity Act, we have the view that is much more, shall I say, um, social, along the lines of social justice in that anything that hurts or that is hurtful to somebody is subjectively determined to be hurtful and therefore should be considered hate speech and that given our ugly history and our uh, the, the past eras of hate and, and harm, that there should be limitations on the right to free speech. We're saying that people should be more robust than that. And I'll give you an interesting example from yesterday. There was an interview on one of our radio stations by a very seasoned presenter of one of the um, spokespeople from the Human Rights Commission. And she asked him what their view of the judgment was. And I think to her surprise, the spokesman said they are very pleased about the judgment because one is it does narrow an extraordinarily overly wide definition of hate speech. And secondly, it gives them certainty because under, under the Constitution, it's much easier for for courts to make judgments that are tight and narrow and clear. Under the Equality Act, there were judgments that went one way, there were judgments that went the other way, and a great deal of confusion was being uh, encountered. And even to my surprise, what the Human Rights Commission was saying was that what I've just said, essentially that that, uh, freedom of speech is incredibly, incredibly important um, and that we must be able to withstand much of what people say to each other, where it be Julius Malema, John Kalani, or Penny Sparrow. The presenter then asked whether the problem with, um, with given our past, our racial past and everything that, that went with it, whether there shouldn't in fact be some limitations on the free, on freedom of speech. And Human Rights Commission said no, there shouldn't. And he went on to elaborate in, on the terms I've discussed, and she then said, well, maybe we should grow a thicker skin. And he said, yes, we should, we need to grow a thicker skin. And I agree in the sense that I think 
to get through life and to actually properly debate the issues that worry us so much and that are so controversial, we need to be able to take it. And to a large extent, the opprobrium that that liberals and the right experience from the left is that we we get confronted with often ugly views and ugly opinions, but social justice terminology and attitudes hold that their opinions are the are the socially and politically correct op- opinions, and in our view, there is no such thing as the social social and politically correct opinions. Everyone is entitled to opinion, and everyone should be entitled to contradict an opinion. So, having uh, um, having tub thumped about about that issue, let's go with the underwhelming news of the post weekend, and that is the news that South Africa will undergo a radical revamp. <clears throat> now, we know that SAA underwent a very unhelpful, incredibly stupid, non-valuable strike by two of the unions. The bottom line being that you don't go on strike to put pressure on an employer when an employer is on its knees financially already. Anyway, the, the strike was sort of resolved in a way that Neither party lost, but nothing is probably very likely going to be paid because everything is contingent on SAA having the money to do so in due course. And, of course, we know that the SAA has no money. And everyone and, – and the solidarity, the trade union movement, tried a, a, new, a different tack. It went to court – to seek an application for SAA to put it, be put into business rescue at, at the time this was all happening. The court refused to put them into business rescue. And the reason why Solidarity tried to seek the order is because it keeps the business operating while they try to find ways to improve its operations and save the business. The alternative is insolvency. So what do we have after this weekend? Instead of a dramatic, well, we actually have to make the, the business insolvent and we have to retrench the staff. The Minister of Public Enterprises, who is Pravin Gordon, then decides that there will be a revamp. We don't know what the radical restructuring process will be. Um, lo- intense discussions have been, have been taking place between the airline's board and the executive committee and the treasury. And what the Department of Public Enterprise is looking for is another 2 billion rand bailout in order for SAA to continue trading while they try to figure this all out. The problem is that it's basically kicking the can down the road again, and we are facing a a potential Moody's downgrade, I think, at the end of February. And if Moody's downgrades us at the end of February, we will be officially be declared junk. And if it, we're declared junk, it means a foreign uh, um, uh, investment by foreigners in government stocks, they will have to pull out, and all our debts and all our borrowing will become much, much more expensive to maintain. This, of course, will be a, a disaster because bad as things are now, our Debt levels will just rise ever, ever faster. And we will have to impose very, very stringent, um, measures to keep South Africa Inc. alive. Perhaps the most interesting thing that's come out of this recently, I saw a statement from the Deputy Minister of Finance, um, this morning, I think it was. Uh, I forget his first name. His surname is Masondo. He is a member of the Communist Party. 
And he came out saying that the Minister of Finance's plan to repair the economy as much as possible, which includes a number of steps that are really, would really be considered, um, quite mainstream and, and logical should be supported. This suggests that Mr. Masondo, in his brief tenure as deputy to, um, Tichambaweni, has learned that socialism is not going to resolve our financial and economic problems. So maybe there's hope on that horizon. The problem is that we need the ANC NEC to come to the same party. And that doesn't look like happening anytime soon. It's, the, we are looking at a system that saw its zenith in the 1950s and has crashed and burned ever since. And it's just in, unutterably tragic. Now we move on to unutterably tragic in a, in a, uh, in a, in another way altogether. There's been a high court case in Mpumalanga where a number of cases where businesses that own trucks have had to go to the high court in Mpumalanga to get orders from the court to get the police to do their jobs. Now that's absurd and ridiculous it sounds. That is the situation that's happening. And it's happening within the context of the um, African Truck Drivers Association, the sort of informal grouping of so-called of apparent truck drivers who are burning trucks, destroying trucks, um, uh, attacking and even killing truck drivers to get companies to stop employing foreign truck drivers on the roads. Now, that isn't bad enough, but to add to the woes of the truck owners and the millions of rands worth of trucks, what is happening is that the the complainants are saying that the police are often on the scene and are watching the criminality happening and they are doing nothing. And the police are saying either they don't have the resources, they don't have the transport, they don't have the cars to get out there, or they're undermanned, or I don't know what. And the the... The bizarreness, the sheer ineptitude, the disgrace of that situation defies um, common sense from you and me. What the, what the judge said in, 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 in most recent case is that the, it's not for the courts to do the, the police's work for them. It is not for the courts to in, insist that the police go out there and arrest people who are committing crime Etc. That that is the job they are required to do, and the person who has to make sure that they do the job is the provincial police commissioner. And the only thing he can do is is say in his judgment that the police, the provincial police commissioner, and I would say by extension the national police commissioner, must make sure the police do their job. Because if there is one area in South African government that has that is failing beyond measure, it is the ability of the police to do their job. Now, arguably in a democracy, the one, if, if, if the, if the government has just one function, that function is to provide safety and security for the people of South Africa. Almost everything else can be provided with government, with, in the private sector, a combination of both. It can be provided for in a variety of ways as our, as our private security industry shows. But, Policing at its most fundamental is the least that the people of South Africa can expect from their government. So all this, all this suggests is that the government, the police minister, the national and provincial commissioners of police should be acutely embarrassed that we have reached the point where they have to make 
be told to do their job. Deary me, where are we going? Where are we going to come from next? Um, after the after the break, um, I am going to have a look at something a little ostensibly a little bit more light-hearted, but something I actually feel quite angrily about, and that is the indomitable Miss Greta Thunberg, who I don't know if she's still 16 or has become 17 since we last spoke. Um, but I'm going to raise her, not because I particularly want to attack her teenagers, although I don't generally have a problem doing so, having been the mother of teenagers at one point, but because I think her, situ- her, her position in, in world climate change politics is very, very dangerous. So if we can go on, then go on to our ad break and we'll come back to you. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Uh, welcome back to the IRR show. And in the last 10 odd minutes, I would invite you to contact us and comment, query, debate, anything that I may have raised today. The studio number is 10 1403020. Alternatively, you can do it by telegram at 061-895-1019 and or SMS 34519. And I hate to say it, but I remember starting my career when telegrams and telefa- and, and telexes were still the primary mode of communication in an office. And then came the big deal of Telefaxes, ah, uh, long before uh, internet, email, etc., etc. Now I said I wanted to talk to uh, talk about our far left climate extremist, as she's been described, Greta Thunberg, who has travelled the world in a boat, going to the United Nations, saying that her childhood has been ruined by the dreaded adults of our generation, who have ruined it for her, destroying the world, etc., etc., etc. And I'm of the firm belief that I have a very old-fashioned approach to things. I'm of the firm belief that children should be seen and not heard. In the case of Ms. Thunberg, I have no different view. In fact, I was rather almost ashamed to watch the, the adults in the UN when she berated them for how dare they destroy her future, as she so said, they... They applauded her and gave her a standing ovation. I put that down to the political correctness of having the oddity of a young teenage girl coming coming along and telling them off for everything they've done that's bad and uh, and oppressive. Now she's gone further and she has she's claiming that fossil fuels are literally killing mankind and are a threat to our quote our very existence close quote. Close quote. And here's the kicker. She has said that her climate crisis agenda is not just about the environment, but about fighting, and I kid you not, quote, colonial, racist, and patriarchal systems of oppression. So we, what we know that now is that she's really an anarchist supported by a- other anarchists, and the only facts that they are going to take into account are facts such as that recent research shows that we are on track to produce 120% more fossil fuels in 2000 in sorry in 2030 than would be consistent with the 1.5 degree centigrade limit they say that the concentration of climate heating greenhouse gases in our atmosphere has reached a record high with no sign of a slowdown 
Even if countries fulfill their current emissions reduction pledges, we are headed for a 3.2 degree centigrade increase. Now, I cannot comment uh, knowledgeably enough about the science behind that, but there seems to be a contradiction in that, and it says that even if we do what we undertook to do, we're going to end up in trouble anyway. Now, no one is denying that uh, that there's a need to reduce um, greenhouse gases. It certainly can't do any harm. The, the debate in, in science has a lot to do with the, the role the gases play, whether other factors such as solar flares, um, the tilting of the of the earth on its axis, which is which is affected by the heated the boiling inner core of the earth. To what extent those factors play a role? How big a role they play, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I would suggest that that. The reason why one has to give very short shrift to Ms. Thurnberg is because nothing else but greenhouse gases and the ex- terrible extent to which um, corp- greedy corporates, etc., have been responsible for them is part of her, 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 her thought process. And this is very, very dangerous because it, the whole issue of climate change is so, so complex and because it's complex, it cannot all be known. And this idea that 99% of, of science is, agrees with about man-made, man-made c- climate change is just non Science can never, even if it is 99% certain at a specific, at a specific choice, uh, point, science is forever changing and, and forever re-questioning it, its, its ideas. So to be coming from that position is grossly uh, irresponsible and and the and the adults who are using her as a sort of mascot deserve to be i don't know what the word is but they they de- they they deserve to well let's put it that way they deserve something and it's not very pleasant someone has recently written an article saying that the real threat to our existence is at the population size because we will be approaching very soon 8 billion people and the degradation that it, that we are that, that is being wrought on our rivers and our seas. And the fact that we have, and this is something I'd like Ms. Thunberg to consider, the fact that while the, the U.S. may still be considered one, that one of the greater, the greater carbon emitters, um, CO2 emitters, India, China, Southeast Asia in general, and Africa still either emit huge carbon uh, emissions, whether um, willingly or not, or have no other choice but to use fossil fuels in order to, to develop their economies. And those issues alone provide huge issues that need to be debated. So you basically you're trying to compare apples, oranges, pears, cucumbers, tomatoes, sandwiches, whatever it may be. There are way too many issues to, to be compared, to be considered for Greta Thunberg and her very radical carbon emission warriors to be listened to with the amount of due deference that they are being listened to. My advice is keep an open mind, seek information, and do not let a um, a teenager tell you what is right. And that, <laughs> that, is, that is the be-all and end-all. Finally, I'd like to come to an issue that's it's it's a little bit sobering, and it's uh, information provided by BizTech yesterday, Business Tech, on how many South Africans have moved to the United Kingdom. Now, they've done a survey recently about the, the 10 major countries that have uh, 
people who've moved from them, who were born in those countries, who have since immigrated to the United Kingdom. And it's a very interesting list. The highest number are Indians, who total 837,000 people living in England. The next are Poles, at 827,000. The third most are Pakistanis, at 533,000. Then, interestingly enough, are Romanians at 434,000. And, of course, the Poles and the Romanians, one understands, as former Eastern Bloc communist states, which liberalized and were given the, the freedom to, to travel and work elsewhere in the, in the EU. Far, uh, the fifth is the Republic of Ireland. But the eighth is South Africa, with 255,000 people. That's both interesting and very, very sad because those are 255,000 people with skills who are no longer in the country. And with that, I send you back to the next ad break. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to the very last section of the show. Um, I, I'd like to just pick up with a couple of points from the, uh, for the, for the statistics I've just been uh, reading to you. And, and the interesting thing is that at, I've mentioned that South Africa is at the, in the eighth position on the list of 10. Nigeria is in fact at number 10 at 207,000. And for some reason, I think most of us would perhaps have envisaged that there would be many more Nigerians living in the UK than actually are. But they are beaten by Italy, Bangladesh, Bangladesh and Germany. So it just, it just goes to show. The only, Perhaps the most positive thing one could say is, as my colleague uh, Ian Crookshanks would say, the thing about being in South Africa today is the weather is absolutely beautiful. Anyway, that largely is our day for today. If you have found the stuff we've brought you interesting and challenging and perhaps a bit controversial, please follow us, uh, the Institute for Industrial of Industrial Relations. Sorry, I do that. I, uh, my, my colleagues tease me about it. The Institute of Race Relations has its online newspaper, which is The Daily Friend, which can be found at dailyfriend.co.za. It has a new opinion op-ed every day, three news pieces, more on the weekends, and we have podcasts and and videos presented on a, on a weekly basis, two podcasts a week, Monday and Wednesday, and a video on Friday in which we discuss these sorts of issues with guests, but mostly with members of the IRR who have a range of interests and uh, expertise. So please feel free to do that. If you're interested in, in the work we do as promoting classical liberalism, please feel free, free to join the IRR, and all you have to do for that is to send an SMS to 32823, and a delightful person at a call center will call on you and talk to you about joining up to support the good fight. Otherwise, next week we'll be back with, uh, I don't as yet know what, and perhaps this time we will be able to get our guest into a studio, and if not him, we'll get another, somebody else. And maybe Sikhle might even be back from traveling the world talking about and interviewing people about the taxi industry. But this is the taxi industry we're talking about, so maybe he will and maybe he won't. Little thumbs up to Simon Anstey for my little session on Thursday afternoon. I will be debunking the myth that the ANC brought us freedom to the politics of South Africa. And so in anticipation of that, I hope you will get very excited because we are bound to disagree. 
Thank you very much for joining me, and please join me, me and Sikhle. And maybe I'll let Sikhle do it on his own next time. And have a wonderful week, and be prepared to commit to your inner classical liberal. Goodbye, and good luck.